In 2010, a 10-foot-tall bronze statue of two women was placed in a plaza in Alexandria, Virginia. Who were the women it was created to commemorate, and why does the city of Alexandria want them honored? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and in this episode, I want to explore the history behind a statue that was unveiled in Alexandria, Virginia in 2010. The story, however, starts in 1848 with two young sisters. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For this episode, we are fortunate to be joined by Maria Pinkleton. Maria, say hello, please. Hello! So Maria is my friend, neighbor. We serve on a board together, but she is also more than that, and there is a reason I have uh, asked her to create this show with me. So Maria, can you give us a little of your background? So my name is Maria Pinkleton, and yes, I am a neighbor of Elizabeth's. I also happen to be related to the two women that are have the bronze statue made of themselves in Virginia. And um, that's actually how I found out about this entire, uh, the statue, the story, the history, was Maria explained it to me after showing some really great family pictures on Facebook that I, of course, liked instantaneously. But after that, we got together and she explained and I said this would make a great episode, a great children's book. Like, this is incredibly fascinating to me because I had never heard the story before, which is what I think especially because it became such a popular topic in the media back in the day when it happened, that it's very impressive in an odd way that we don't talk about it more today. So it was a subject or a historical fact that came to my knowledge when I was in middle school. Mm -hmm. My grandmother... And her sister, Genevieve, had worked for several years on getting a reprint done of the original book by John Painter. We are telling the story tonight of Emily and Mary Edmondson. Yes. Two young sisters who were slaves in uh, Washington, D.C. in the 1840s. The sources for this story are largely from that time period. Newspaper reports, ship manifestos, there were political speeches... For those um, very familiar with the abolition movement, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote a key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. But the book Maria is mentioning by John Painter, who is also one of her relatives, was The Fugitive of the Pearls, which was published in 1930. Its foreword was written by W.E.B. Du Bois, which if you we're playing like Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon here with some of my, my episodes. So if you remember my one on Yolanda Du Bois, her father also wrote the foreword for the book The Fugitive of the Pearl, Okay, tell us a little bit more about it. So I was told about this book that my grandmother was trying to get copies reprinted for everyone in the family, in Mm -hmm. our immediate family. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what this book was. My mother only told me, oh, these are some of your ancestors, and it's a story of how they attempted to escape slavery. So it turns out that my grandmother's husband, um, A.B., Austin Bernard Green, Found out that the book had been published and then was no longer available. They found a copy of it and they got books bound, which the books would have his final proof signature on all these pages of this completely bootleg book. But it was just for family. Right. But it is the story of the attempted escape from slavery of several of my ancestors, six of them. And for me to know that they had attempted such a feat at such a young age, the youngest of them were Emily and Mary, 
15 and 13 at the time, who were willing to leave their mother, their rather, as would be considered comfortable slave life, um, working in a home, not cotton field, outside Mm -hmm. labor. They did not care. Freedom was ingrained in them, the need for it, the want for it. So when they found out that the boat, the Pearl, was going to be docking, and if they were to try to escape, they needed to be on it by 11 o'clock. So it's it's exciting, but also it's surreal to know that this was these were the lives lived of my ancestors. That these were the lives lived of thirteen and fifteen year old children. Yes, um, and that this was their option. And so Emily and Mary were so they were thirteen and fifteen. They had been born to a freed black man, Paul Edmondson. Their mother was a slave, and that meant legally they were slaves. They were born in the Maryland, Virginia area? Yes. Yes. The product that most of the plantations in that area had had slaves work on in the fields was a tobacco product. Tobacco fell off. And so by this point in time, most of the slaves in those areas were either sold down the river, which is where we get that phrase from, to New Orleans, or they were kind of almost rented out to families in Washington, D.C., to hotels in Washington, D.C., and that's what actually happened to most of the Edmondson siblings. Yes. So there were 14? 14 total children. 14 children, and so many of them were living in D.C. One was already free. Her husband had um, bought his freedom, then bought her freedom, and so the families would meet up in that house once a week on Sunday afternoons, and that's when one brother, Samuel, came and said, there's a boat. We're going to get on the boat. The parents were nervous, but what other options did they have to get their kids out of slavery? Because at any time, especially with the economy, your child could be sold away from you. So, yeah, there was a boat. It was being paid for by abolitionists. And they snuck out. So why don't you tell us what happened on that night when they snuck out to the boat? So on the night that they snuck out, it was actually the brother that you just mentioned, Samuel. Samuel. Mm -hmm. And um, Emily left... The as you said, they were spread out and mm-hmm. working in many different houses. Met up with Mary mm-hmm. and proceeded to go through the evening. Um, it was not so odd that there would be three black people walking together, three slaves walking together, as long as you were off the streets by ten. I believe mm-hmm. the slave curfew was ten o'clock. Mm-hmm. You were going and coming, and also um, in D.C. at this point in time, which is interesting for just the larger story of everything that's happening. There were three times as many freed black people as slaves in D.C. So even though there was still a curfew even for freed black people, there was potentially a more understanding freedom of movement. So, yes, three black people, three slaves walking together at night, not necessarily cause for concern. Right. So they left the plantation they were on or the house that they worked for, met up with Mary, and continued on to the docks where the Pearl was parked or docked. The Pearl was a ship that was not too large. It was like a two-mast ship. I believe Mm -hmm. that's what that's called. Mm -hmm. But it was obviously a beacon of hope and everything they could have ever imagined for this family. It turns out that not only Emily, Mary, and Samuel were there, three other siblings Mm -hmm. came that were older as well as 71 other slaves. As well as 71 other and, slaves. And all of found out about it. And all of these slaves um, were what would be sort of termed um, house slaves. Uh-huh. There are the house slaves and there are the field slaves. And the field slaves are, as you would guess, they work in the fields. And the house slaves were usually considered 
more polite. Yes, they were more polite. They were more intelligent, and they were usually considered better looking yep. and um, better dressed because they were your house slaves. Um, they, you know, your they would range from your kitchen maid to your nanny to your butler, your gentleman's gentleman, and so all of the people on this boat were from this group. And there have been I was reading an article by C. W. Harper, and he argued that um, it's less likely for a house slave to run away because they have a better condition. Not that it's impossible, and in fact, most people still would want that freedom, but that it was less likely. And yet, here we have this case of seventy-seven people deciding to make a very dangerous yes. choice, but to get freedom. And all of them are from this slave caste. This as C.W. Harper calls it in one article, the slave aristocracy, yes. basically. Yes. Um, but they want freedom. So they they boarded the ship and were put in the bottom hull of this boat. The men that were at the helm of it were white, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and had been able to get in, get word spread, hey, if you want to get out, be on by this time, mm-hmm. and be out. So... At 11, they closed up the hall, mm-hmm. and it was rather tight quarters. Um, that was where Mary and Emily and Samuel saw that their other siblings were on the boat as well. Mm-hmm. The other three other mm-hmm. siblings um, were on the boat, and the boat went off to sea, yes. or attempted to go off to sea. So they were relying on winds anyway, mm-hmm. um, because it was a full-on sailboat. They were relying yes. on winds, which were not plentiful on that evening. So they floated adrift for quite a while. Um, the winds pi- finally picked up, and this was going into the evening. So if you imagine, they set sail at 11. They finally got winds, say, around after midnight and got to get closer to to get off the Potomac River mm-hmm. and to get out to the Chesapeake Bay. Right. Um, they get out to the very, very tip edge, and a storm hits, which the boat is... Not sturdy enough, not large enough, not equipped to be able to stand that kind of storm. So they went into a harbor, and I believe it was called Bellflower Harbor. There was a tiny little nook that they could park in and wait for the storm to pass. Sadly, when the morning came, people realized my food is not cooked. (laughs) My fires are not on. My clothes are not laid out. My baby's crying. (laughs) Where is that slave? They were all gone. People realized, oh, yes. and then they've left. This brings us to kind of the um, the villain of the piece that Maria is in the background right now, shaking her fist about this man. The slave owners wake up, or the people who the slave they hadn't used the slaves, they'd rented them, whatever you want to call it for the terminology. They wake up, the slaves are gone. But you know, how do you know where to look for them? Right? Like, yes, it's a lot of slaves who have gone all in one place. But how do you know? Well, it turns out that one man, a black man living in D.C who was a carriage driver, had, according to reports, he had dropped off one of the slaves at the ship, and then the slave had told him that he wouldn't have money for him then, or he'd pay him back later, yeah. or something like that. So this man, Judson Diggs. Yeah. Judson Diggs, also occasionally showing up as Judson Higgs, but Judson Diggs was allegedly very angry that he had been, you know, stiffed on this payment. Now, another argument, or another story, and a lot of these are stories, you know, oral culture passed down, But another story has it that Judson had known the Edmondson family, had attended kind of the little family prayer meetings or church that they had had, and that he had proposed to Emily, and she had laughed and said no. 
And this was also that so he has this unrequited love and he's very angry and so he's taking it out on them this way. Let us also remember, though, that if this story is true or even if someone made up this story, Emily is 13. So I'm not really sure why we're supposed to be like, oh, man, I understand why he would be so angry that a 13-year-old turned down his marriage proposal. Like, no, even back then, 13 is not a normal age. I know a lot of people say, oh, in the night, no, this is not a normal age. The slave owners... uh, have come out to look for their slaves. The police have come out because, you know, escaped slaves, that is a crime. And Judson, they run into Judson, and he's more than happy to tell him who he had dropped off the night before, what ship they had gotten on, and the direction it had gone. So they were followed by a steamship. That doesn't need wind. That doesn't rely on the wind, or Mm. is a lot hardier to be able to withstand a storm. But they were nearly to the tip edge of the Potomac and nearly out to Chesapeake Bay when someone sees in the early morning fog what looks to be ship sails off in the distance in this little cove. And it turns out that was a ship they were looking for that held the 77 escape slaves. So they were, Mm -hmm. the ship was boarded and the white men at the helm were not. I mean, it's amazing they weren't dead. Yes. Within short order. The um, So the slaves were obviously in trouble, but the bigger trouble at that point in time was for the white men who were steering the boat, who were right. running the boat. And in fact, one um, young man who was the cook on the boat insisted that he thought it was a pleasure cruise, that he didn't know. And so he did get off. But I mean, that's the extent. Um, when they get back into Alex, they actually come through Alexandria. And when they get back in... The white men, they're basically attacked. Yes. Um, so they have to be locked. They're all put in prison anyway, but they have to be locked up. Just to go from that port, the walk they took, halfway mm-hmm. through the walk, they had to get a, mm-hmm. a horse and buggy for them mm-hmm. because people were punching them, mm-hmm. stabbing It's like the slaves, yeah. we expect slaves to act this way. It's like we understand but that. You white and people should know better. Yeah, so for example, um, the so the, the male slaves were put in manacles. But the women and the children, so there were women and children besides just Emily and um, Mary, they were allowed to walk. Mm-hmm. And because, yes, the slaves, it was like, well, we've got them back. We're, they're obviously going to be under our control again. But the white men have betrayed us. And so, yeah, they were cut. They were attacked. They're going to get, they get put on trial. So they end up yes. in a jail called the Bruin Slave Jail. And Bruin and Hill are really kind of famous slave traders. Uh-huh in the Alexandria, Virginia area. And they contact the owners of all those 77 slaves, and they say, okay, well, who wants to get rid of your troublesome slave? We will buy them. We will take care of it. And they end up buying all the Edmondsons. Now, there was... So the Edmondson owners were happy to get rid of these troublesome slaves. Um, So the woman who had kind of rented out Mary Mm -hmm. tried to buy her before Bruin sent her to New Orleans. So it wasn't even that they were... Obviously, they were upset that Mary had tried to escape, but it wasn't even, it was like, no hard feelings. We're going to bring you back. We right. don't want you sent down the river. And I think that's very important because being sent down to New Orleans was very, very bad. So even if you were upset that your slave tried to escape, if you had feelings for that, you did not want that slave to be sent down the river. No. The so, further south oh, you went, the worst the worst conditions for slaves mm-hmm. got. Yes. So the fact that you were living in a... In a state mm-hmm. or a district in which a good portion of the population of brown people were free anyway. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not the yes. case where you were going to... So being sold down the river was bad, and that was what Bruin and Hill did. 
They bought the slaves and they immediately got, they took about two weeks to charter everything, but they got a boat and they sent these six Edmondsons down to New Orleans. And now this, we're just going to talk about the manifest, the ship manifest. That includes um, all of their names, but it also includes ages and and skin heights and their skin tones. Maria and I were having a conversation before because we are familiar with, um, so different legal terms kind of for a slave parentage. So mulatto or quadroon. And so what that means about your parents or your grandparents, your great grandparents, um, and whether or not one was white. But the manifest doesn't include that. Instead, um, do you want to give the different colors that the... So this is one, this is a group, for some reason, a group of 17 that Mm -hmm. were on the list. The Manifest of Negroes, Mulattoes, and Persons of Color, taken on board the Steamer Columbia of Washington. And they were starting at number 12, who was, that was Ephraim Mm -hmm. Edmondson. Which is still, I love that name. Maria hates it. That's such a weird name. It's the best name. He was 25. He was five foot seven, and he was coffee. Then there was Peter Edmondson, who was 27. He was five foot ten. He was also coffee. Sam Edmondson was 22, five foot eight. He was yellow. Richard Edmondson, 25, five foot eight, black. And then at the bottom of the list, there's Mary, who is now listed as being 17 mm-hmm. and yellow, and Emily who is now listed as being 15 in mm-hmm. yellow. I found this manifest, and I asked Elizabeth, mm-hmm. I thought there were 13 and 15. What happened? There's mm-hmm. a time gap here. Mm-hmm. And then I look further, and I see that actually it was known that during transactions, mm-hmm. documents would be forged mm-hmm. so that girls would look young, but on paper would be old enough to be sold into the fancy girl mm-hmm. or sex slavery and market. That's here. where Emily and Mary were being sent. They were going to be fancy girls, which is prostitutes. They were going to be sent to be prostitutes, and so their ages were increased because people didn't want to legally sleep with a 13-year-old, they but a 15-year-old, that, that seemed fine. But that kind of brings us back to the whole Judson Diggs and proposing allegedly to a 13-year-old. But we also, with the skin tones, um, that you would probably... Put the skin tones because that would help you more identify who yes. people are yes. based on the very differences um, in the skin tone as you're doing counts. So the girls and their brothers end up down in um, in New Orleans, and they are priced at twelve hundred a head, which is also incredibly expensive yes. for a slave at this time. Yes. So the average slave in 1849 uh, was about four hundred dollars. And so the fact that they're all put down at 1200 see, this is where you just start saying things, you're like, this sounds horrible. But yes. they were considered to be such good quality yes. slaves. And, and actually, I've read reports that state the entire family mm-hmm. was so well-respected and mm-hmm. highly regarded. For instance, Bruin was like, oh, I've always had my eyes. And several other slave, mm-hmm. slave owners and slave brokers mm-hmm had their eyes on the entire family. Mm-hmm. Because, as you said before, they were so highly regarded for their poise yes. and their piousness, and they were probably so well-spoken and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So when they were taken from the ship, the other slaves, well, the, the accounts of the brothers, they were all in their butler wear. Like, they are, you know, dressed as mm-hmm. they served, you know, formal mm-hmm. dinner that evening. 
So it was not a, it was a case of, wow, these are like the best of the best. Yeah. So they got the best, the best and, price. And so the they heads. were priced very high. So this entire time, their dad, Paul, is who is a free black man, remember, is trying to figure out how to buy his children into freedom because he knows how bad it is to end up in New Orleans. This is not a good thing. And especially for his two young girls, what are you supposed to do? So he reaches out to different groups. He's able to get John Jacob Astor to pay for one of the brothers. Well, they, they agree that um, he'll pay for only one of them. They buy one of the brothers out. They're doing all of these different things. And finally, he ends up in, um, in New York City. And he speaks to Henry Ward Beecher, who's a famous abolitionist and also Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother. So um, Henry Ward Beecher, famous abolitionist, he has a church in Brooklyn, and Beecher gives a, um, a sermon in which he talks about the two girls, how well-spoken they are, how sweet they are, how pretty they are, and how they are being sold into sexual slavery, which is, as he puts it, worse. So he's an abolitionist. He already doesn't like slavery. He's already against slavery, but he says this is even worse than slavery. To do that to these pure young girls, to sell them into sexual slavery. And so the church puts up the money and they buy the girls for a very expensive fee and they bring them to New York. And that's it. The girls and the rest of their brothers end up becoming free after being bought. So then they're in New York. They travel all over going to abolitionist rallies because, again... They are incredibly well-spoken. Yes. And incredibly, they are very pretty, very sweet young girls. So, of course, they are like the, the perfect poster well, girls for well, that's it. Yeah. the abolitionist movement. If you want an argument that um, slavery uh, is wrong, and which you should, um, but if you want an argument that slavery is wrong and um, that black people and white people are equal, here are these two delightful young ladies who are demonstrating the very reality of that. They have been raised in a very good family home. They've been trained in good manners. They are the poster child. Yes. yes. And it was often in that time that when abolitionists were looking to do articles mm-hmm. or do publish, publish manifestos or whatever you would call them in newspapers, they would use photos mm-hmm. of... Girls like Mary and Emily. Mm-hmm. Uh, one account of those that were taken from the ship, the other fugitives of the Pearl, was that over half of them were whiter than the person that wrote the article. Yep. He said they were so white, they mm-hmm. looked whiter than me. So what better picture to use mm-hmm. to convince you, the white person, that these people are mm-hmm. awesome than a, it looks like a white person? Yes. How are they a slave? Yes. I look like that. So it was, they were perfect poster children mm-hmm. for this cause and they were taken into the fold of the abolitionist movement mm-hmm. and the biggest convention it's not a convention the biggest rally or um convention i'm gonna say convention again yes. um abolitionist was in casanova new york in 1850 which was the same year that uh, a law known as the fugitive slave law was being debated in congress since 1793 a fugitive slave act had existed in the united states And it's very simply said that if a slave runs away to another state, the people in the other state, if they find out they have this runaway slave, will return it to its owner. But a lot of people in the non-slave states or in the the states that started to outlaw um, slavery didn't always return the, uh, the slaves who ran away. And so 
The southern slave states were becoming more and more angry about this since about 1843, things had really heated up. The Pearl... Um, the 1848 escape or attempted escape on the Pearl had really had started to be used as sea. All of these slaves are trying to escape north because they know once they get north, they don't have to come back. So in 1850, there's the Compromise of 1850, but there's also a new fugitive slave law, which is basically you northern states have to truly return our slaves if they run away to you. So at the same time, the abolitionists had a big rally in New York and Casanova where Frederick Douglass, probably the most famous former slave and abolitionist, he was there, he spoke, other famous abolitionists spoke, and if you look at the pictures from it, there are Emily and Mary Mm -hmm. standing right behind Douglass, and it is believed that one of them spoke, and again, was recorded as being this very well-spoken, polite, sweet girl. Because remember, they're still not very old. No. They're only 15 and 17 at this point in time. And they were not, they, neither one of them knew how to read mm-hmm. accounts that I, they're orig- originally they could not read. They definitely couldn't write. They had had no formal education. So while they were well mannered mm-hmm. and they, they were very lovely young girls, mm-hmm. they were not masters of public speaking. Mm-hmm. They had not been trained. They like- were Thrust into this. Yes. Now, mind you, they were not shy. Yes. They were not afraid, as you can tell, because they were like, I'm out. Yeah. Right? And one family legend has it that when they were on the boat to New Orleans, that um, I think it's Emily, started singing um, by the river of, of Babylon. And then everyone else started singing. So again... The girls they were, were leaders. Yes. Um, and they were, there was also um, several accounts of people yelling at them saying, aren't you afraid? Aren't you ashamed of what you did to your masters? Um, and what was very funny, I read one article where when Emily answered, no, I'm not ashamed and I'll do it again if I get the shot. The guy was like, well, she's got some spunk, doesn't she? Yes, they did. Yes. So they had the spunk. However, mm-hmm. when you're thrust in front of hundreds of people well, that yeah, were these probably are, these are in New York massive rallies. who were speaking, yeah. and Frederick Douglass, I'm mm. sure, was was not a man who was not imposing. I'm sure he was very intimidating mm-hmm. to be yes. around. So they were on this stage with all of these great people, mm-hmm. great orators, yes. great leaders of the time, and they are still essentially high school girls. So because of um, this kind of this pause, this delivery... They actually, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and the congregation in Brooklyn and others are like, we have to send these girls to college. So they had, um, they had gone for a very short amount of time to a school um, in New York, but they ended up getting, being sent to Oberlin, which Oberlin makes sense because Oberlin had had an abolitionist movement since right. the 1830s. Right. Oberlin was like this hot spot on the Underground was, Railroad. Yes. So they get sent to Oberlin, and which sounds great. The girls are 18 and 20. They go to Oberlin College's Young Ladies Preparatory School. But while they are there, Mary passes away from tuberculosis. So Mary, who is 20, um, dies from tuberculosis. Emily is heartbroken, as one can understand. And she actually returns to D.C., which is where her family... So this is 1853. Slavery is still a, a thing. Right, we are not post-Civil um, War yet. So this is 1853, but she returns to D.C. where her family is. And she begins to attend a school for teachers there. So the school's name is the Normal, normal school, school for Colored Girls. Now, normal school was just the way that they called teacher schools. Um, that was a teacher education center. 
And so it was started by this woman, Mertilla Minor, who actually is Emily's, like, they room together at a house. And they write letters about how they're living in the bad neighborhood. <laughs> and people are throwing rocks at their houses. We're like, every night we go to bed, we're pretty sure it's going to be, like, burned down. Emily's parents come by and bring them a dog because they're like, this isn't safe. And then I love Mertilla in one letter. She says that um, they make sure that they're seen outside the house practicing with their guns. Just to like, set the tone. Well, that's just <laughs> what you're dealing with. I'm like, way to just set it up there, ladies. Make that make that happen. But um, so they're at the school. Um, so Mertilla had started the school. Emily is educated there. The school itself is controversial. There was a city official, Walter Lennox, who um, in the aftermath of the Pearl, there had been a riot, as we had um, sort of discussed, had gone on for three days. So he had um, authored or co-authored a pamphlet or a bill back then saying, you know, everyone calm down. Everything's going to be fine. And in 1853, when this new teacher training college is opened up, he calls it misguided philanthropy. And it's basically, we should not be educating black women. This is not a good idea. This is not going to lead us to anywhere. Um, but the school stays. And the school is now actually one of the uh, the D.C. teacher colleges, yes. I believe. So so the school stays. She goes there. But I think, it again, it's this idea that, um, so Mary has passed away. But Emily even, life is dangerous. Yes. And she does not, that has not yet stopped her. No. And she stole, she chose to go back to a city where she knows at any minute now, someone could technically snatch her up and send her down the river. Mm-hmm. If they still have a bitter bone about yes. the whole slave revolt, still have a bitter bone about comments that were, I'll do it again if I get the chance. Mm-hmm. Anything could have happened to her. And yes. she still went back to be near her family. Yep. And this is the 1850s. I mean, we are like on the downward roller coaster towards the Civil War. Right. Like this is, everything is speeding up. Kansas is blowing, like, everything is happening at this point in time. So, yeah, she goes back to D.C. She's with her family. She's getting an education. Um, she ends up getting married to a man named Larkin Johnson. They'll have six kids. They live in Sandy Spring in Maryland. Um, it sounds very sweet and idyllic. And then, and I love it again because here we go in. In 1867, there was a community, a settlement created in D.C. It's called the Hillsdale Community. It's the Anacostia neighborhood in the Hillsdale Community. And it was created by the Freedmen's Bureau. So the Freedmen's Bureau was set up post-Civil War to help all of the now freed men and women mm-hmm. find jobs, find places to live, find education. Because when slavery ends, no one has a place to go. Right. Uh, the, the oral recordings from the 1930s of the former slaves, who at that point in time were like 80 and 90 years old, but they refer to it as when freedom broke. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, freedom, just that's it. You just had it, and you didn't have anywhere to go. So they set up the Freedmen's Bureau as part of Reconstruction. So the Freedmen's Bureau um, created this neighborhood in D.C. for 40,000 former slaves. The um, the slaves who were there at that time were destitute. They were homeless. So Freedmen's Bureau is like, we're going to put this together. Emily, her family, they move there. They move there to help give it this level of respectability right. to help say, I can teach. we are going to be here. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be fine. In 1877, Frederick Douglass buys a house there. So, I mean, again, we find Emily, she escapes from slavery or attempts to escape from slavery, but all other times, she is not a person who is afraid of danger. Right. She is not a person who is afraid of controversy. She is a person who knows that she has some sort of leadership in her community. Mm-hmm. She is seen as a respected figure, and she tries to use that to to help her community. 
She passes away in 1895, mm-hmm. a few months after actually Frederick Douglass does. Um, they of, remain friends. Yeah, one of um, Emily's grandchildren said that it was like Frederick Douglass and Emily, they said the relationship was like a brother-sister relationship. Big brother, little sister. And since two former slaves, mm-hmm. one can understand. They had traveled together, they had seen a lot together, and they both again had standing in their community, which is one of the reasons why, as I stated at the beginning of this episode... That I'm so surprised we don't know about this. Exactly. Because they did have such standing in their community. Both Emily and Mary were famous in their community. So I don't understand how we have lost them. And obviously Alexandria is trying to bring them back. Yes. Which we're going to have a picture of Maria's son in front of the statue on the website. I think that there are many stories like this that are lost. There are many stories that are known about figures in history, uh, courageous slaves during mm-hmm. the yes. Underground Railroad and, and all of the all of the trials and tribulations that mm-hmm. happened during that time in America. But I think that it is kind of hard to find them because they mm-hmm. are haha in the footnotes. I was interested in it because I knew that I was a descendant of mm-hmm. some pretty powerful pe- leader mm-hmm. type females. Yes. Um, but I did not realize that going back, it mm-hmm. was, you know, when push came to shove, this is what happened to these two. Yes. My direct descendant, Eliza Edmondson, she was one of the older Edmondson sisters. Right. And her and three other siblings were offered by their kind and considerate slave owner the mm-hmm. opportunity to work a couple of side gigs right. to save money to buy their way out of slavery. Right. And that is what she did mm-hmm. and how she avoided being a slave for so long. Right. She was able to purchase herself out of mm-hmm. slavery, then married, then had children. But the fact that you had to rely on a nice slave owner. Right. Even to purchase herself out of a mm-hmm. nice slave situation. Right. Um, to learn this about my relatives was mm-hmm. amazing. And then to learn that there was a statue of two of them who yes. were the youngest. It caused me to say, what was I doing when I was 13 and 15? <laughs> I, I was I hanging do, out at the mall. Yes, I do believe that was our conversation. You were like, what? And I was like, I really liked New Kids on the Block. So did they I. were super cool. So it's a it's a different world. It's a different world, but it makes you realize what you do when you are faced with it. Oh. No matter the age, mm-hmm. you do what you have to do. Um, and so I can only say that I am I'm extremely proud to be descended from these women. I want my son to know about them. Mm-hmm. I want his friends to know about them. Yes, as young children and also their brothers, as children themselves and young men. They made a hard decision, and they did not look back. And that's, that's amazing, and that, I think, is a wonderful lesson for all of us yes. when faced with adversity. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.